We missed the mark. Duh. We're disappointed in how some have misinterpreted this commercial. Peloton. I want my life back. BP. These are some corporate apology faux pas we found in recent history. So today we're going to be talking about corporate apologies. I'm Yoon Lee. And I'm James Parnell. And we are the hosts of Bar Talk. Bar Talk is a lecture, performance, and storytelling series that usually takes place in different bars in The Hague. Each event has its own theme where we feature four guests with different perspectives. This is episode two of our podcast season on apologies and atonement. And we have corporate lawyer Roy Hayesockers with us. Roy is a philosophical researcher in corporate law, contemplating ways to reform corporations towards more social and ecological responsibility. Today, we'll be talking to Roy about apologizing and atoning for corporate crimes, both against nature and against humanity. He'll reflect on what corporations need to apologize for, who should apologize, and how such apologies could take form. Let's welcome Roy. Quick note, this episode includes mention of sexual harassment. Welcome. Hi, Roy. Yeah. Hello. <laughs> How are you? Yeah. Welcome to Bar Talk. We're super excited to have you here. Yeah. Thanks, you and uh, James, for having me and for your generous introduction. So, first things first. What is corporate law, and what do you do as a corporate lawyer? Uh, yeah. So, corporate law is really the field. So, it's part of the law, basically. So, it's like the rules that we, as a society, use to govern like our lives, basically. And corporate law is then the field that looks at how corporations are being organized. So the responsibilities that a CEO has, but also the rights that institutional investors like banks, when they become shareholders, have in relationship to the board. But then also the rights employees have in a corporation, like in the work council or in other ways. And so that all is what we call corporate law. And it can also be so small as when you as bar talks want to incorporate and become like a BV or an, a separate entity, then that is also corporate law. So you go to a notary and you become a legal person. It's actually interesting that one of the books that got me inspired into this research when I was already in law school is uh, Sapiens by Yuval Harari. You've mm-hmm. probably heard of yeah. that. And he actually says that the legal corporation is one of the biggest inventions of humanity because it basically allows us to invent, like magically invent, new persons that can hold rights, that can own things, they can employ people, they can have bank accounts, they can even like influence political uh, processes, right? They can fund campaigns and all that. And that field that organizes these legal fictions, that is corporate law. Okay, sounds pretty broad. So what is your particular specialty if you have one? Well, yeah, I'm trying to build into one, I suppose. So I look at how, so corporate law is mostly a functional field, right? It organizes all these things that I just mentioned. But increasingly also we want corporate law to regulate something about how corporations should deal with things like human rights or with political elections or uh, with the rights of nature or in general, the sustainable development goals. Like we want corporations to engage with those broader issues. And increasingly, we want corporate law 
to regulate that, to include those things in its uh, system. And so my research is really looking at how this can take shape and basically how we can get towards more sustainable corporate governance, social and sustainable corporate governance. Yes. Very cool. Maybe just one more clarifying introductory question. Sure. How did you get into this line of research? How did you get interested in corporate law? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, uh, as I said, it's a bit of an existential question, but I think so. I got into law school because I liked the law as a field that was really designed to protect certain people that couldn't protect themselves, right? That, that I think, was my, like, 18-year-old ideal of going to law school. And I've always been intrigued by the question of how, like, you as a free individual relate to the common good, to, like, the collective good of society, particularly, I think, in this age in relation to climate change, but also uh, global inequality, social inequality. And so, I don't know, thinking about those questions, increasingly, I felt that in a lot of fields of law, we have discussions about uh, how to prevent, let's say, ecological degradation or human rights violations, but never in corporate law. And it felt weird to me that this being the field that kind of designs, let's say, the psyche of a corporation and how the psyche works of a corporation, I felt, well, if you want to change the way corporations act in society and in nature, then we need to start at the core, which is corporate law. And so that's, I think, how I got involved in the, in this topic, let's say, eight years ago. I mean, it, I took a few deviations before I, I, I started a PhD in this field. But yeah, I think that's how it kind of started for me, intellectually at least. Yeah. Thanks for the explanation. Yeah. Wow. It, it makes me okay. much more excited for the concept of corporate law. To yeah, be so yeah. It's, it's really it's a it's a big misconception that corporate law is something for like people in suits living in high like, gray towers and earning a lot of money. It's it, I, I, well, I, it's also for them, and it and it can be very technical and very challenging in that respect. But it's also something that yeah is relevant for us as society or as a community to think about. Yeah. Yeah, because I always assume that corporate law is also in some way about protecting corporations. In the end, that's a misconception that I think I had. Or yeah, is it, well, yeah. Is it a misconception? I don't but yeah, I think well, so. No, so, yeah. Well, we can maybe get to that in later on as well. Yeah. But, um, yeah, it's been like, a, let's say, a dominant ideology to view corporate law as like purely economic and also to view corporations as purely private actors in an amoral space. So I think we'll get to a yeah. point where we can explain that. Yeah, Definitely. So onto corporations and apologies. How bad do things need to get before a corporation actually decides to apologize? And what are some of the most common things that they apologize for? Yeah, so first, actually, it relates to what James just said. So I think for a long time, it was common to view corporations as private actors operating in what they call an amoral space. So not an immoral space, not immoral in the sense of bad, but amoral in the sense of neither right nor wrong. It was just, we've perceived the market to be beyond morality, basically. The market would solve morality. This is something that Joris Leijendijk popularized after the financial crisis. So for a long time, the idea of a corporate apology didn't exist because corporations were there to make money. And if they made money, they were good. And if they didn't make money, they were bad. And that's the end of morality for corporations. So the whole notion of Lehman Brothers apologizing for going bankrupt and then destroying all these families who lost their homes, it never came up. It just didn't come up. So, and I think this is what the ideology behind this is what they call neoliberalism nowadays, right? And I think in the last 10 years, since the financial crisis, increasingly we see 
we expect from corporations to take moral responsibility and also to, yeah, we, we view them as moral actors who are capable of apologizing. But still, I think you don't see that many. Yeah, you just named a few examples, but those were smaller instances. For example, common examples of company apologizing is KLM stating an apology for a delayed flight. Those apologies you see a lot. But the bigger issues, you hardly see a corporate apology. And I think it also has to do with the amorality, the perceived amorality of corporations, but also with the fact that oftentimes these issues have legal repercussions and then it's part of a legal process. So for example, Philips right now is in a process, maybe you've read about it in the news, they delivered malfunctioning sleep apnea machines for people having breathing problems when sleeping and they might be cancerous. So Frans van Houten, the CEO, he has said he's sorry for the victims, but he hasn't stated an apology because it's part of a long legal process involving like a lot of money. And so stating an apology would maybe also attract blame and responsibility to them. So they can't do it. So that's also, I think, why you hardly see corporate apologies for like the real issues. Right. That's super interesting. And it makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. And so... I know you rarely see apologies for these big issues, but what are some of the things that you think corporations should be apologizing for? Yeah, so, well, and and these are more broader, but I think there are two broad, like, let's say, classes of, of types of action that I think corporations could apologize for. So first of all, acts that go against nature. And then the second broader class is acts that go against humanity. And so acts against nature, for example, you have a lot of oil spills. Maybe you remember Deepwater Horizon. I think there's also a movie about it in which uh, BP was responsible for an oil spill. Similarly, Shell has an oil spill in the Niger Delta. So those are things against nature that you might expect an apology for. Also illegal deforestation in the Amazon rainforest or illegal mining, those kind of things. And then you have another group of actions which go against humanity. And that can be a broad range, I think, of things that, Corporations could apologize for ranging from modern types of slavery, things like forced labor in the supply chain uh, of a corporation, yeah, people involved in, in mining in forced labor camps or something like that, or child labor, but also uh, yeah, things that particularly in recent years have been uh, getting a lot of attention, sexual transgression or a culture of institutional racism, those kind of things. I think the Dove commercial is a good example of one of those things yeah anyway we, we might get to that um but those i think two broad classes might attract an apology yeah yeah and so if a corporation is apologizing what do you feel like the goal is from the corporate perspective for the apology yeah interesting question right because um again corporations are private actors so as again we're perceived to be operating in an amoral space so um, i think if they apologize they make a trade-off whether it is in their interest to apologize so then it becomes opportunistic and you might even ask yourself whether there can ever be a good apology that is opportunistic so and and yeah and i think you see for example the dove campaign if you're cynical you might just say this is a way to save brand value or or at least save reputation so I think that is always a trade-off that corporations make, also taking into account the legal repercussions of making a apology. So I think that is the background of why corporations would apologize. And and who is actually apologizing and who's making these decisions? How many people are usually involved in a whole apology? <laughs> yeah, so I, I don't know. I, I don't know exactly how the process goes internally. So oftentimes you see a CEO apologizing or like a big public figure might be like a family member if it's a family corporation mm-hmm. or I don't know, someone like, uh, like, a, like, like a famous figure 
of the corporation. But yeah, I think, for example, the Dove campaign to me, it's, it struck me that also the team involved in making the advertisement might have had a big role in making the apology. I'm not quite sure which department issued the apology, but it might be just the team that had done it, right? So it can also be somewhere in the corporation that people apologize. Right. Okay. Since we've mentioned this yeah, advertisement. advertisement a few times, I think we actually need to describe it. So a quick summary of the Dove commercial that they were apologizing for. Basically, Dove was apologizing for a racially insensitive ad. And while well, watching it, you just kind of can't help but laugh because it's just so obvious. Basically, well, Dove, which is mostly known for its soap, soap <laughs> <laughs> is showing a black woman taking off a brown shirt and then revealing emerging as a white woman right exactly yes. <laughs> yes. after she after she washes washed washed herself yes. yes so implying that um once yeah. you use dove you become clean <laughs> yes. and then as a result become a a Caucasian woman. <laughs> yes. So, um, yes, that, that's about that it. That was the Dove. And the thing, I think the other thing is that Dove, it had body wash products. Maybe you know, but I think it had these products that would turn you uh, lighter. Like lightning. Oh, yeah. Lightening oh, your skin. True. That was not, that was like seven years before. Yeah, so some yeah. people were also saying, yeah, once is, I'll forgive you, but yeah. twice is... Because yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. they, they have this particular legacy as well. Yeah. Well, that's the joke of it. They have this legacy of body positivity and like different skin colors in the same pictures. Like they were very early in the game of like trying to open up, I guess... Uh, While having um, skin lightening skin products. Lightning <laughs> And then, <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm still, yeah, yeah, very, very weird uh, thing, I think. Like, yeah. Yeah, particularly because Unilever is also claiming to be ahead of the curve, right? In those respects, mm. trying to be, mm. aspiring to be better. So you also expect better from them. But I guess if you make a brand out of being better, you'll always fail. Yeah, <laughs> that is yeah. true. That it's is like, true. Yeah, yeah. It's very true. Yeah. So, in your opinion, has there ever been a successful corporate apology, and how is that measured? Yeah, I, w- I actually wanted to pose it back to you. Like, <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I don't know. I, I actually. Uh, there are a few examples that we can discuss and also particularly not only if there have been I think there have been successful apologies definitely but I couldn't think of like a big example that really stands out necessarily and also yeah how is it measured well we we can get to that but I I think for example the Dove case uh, in which they issued an, an advertisement that was clearly racial but I think also clearly not intended to be racial it was let's say it was a very stupid but honest mistake I think their apology was fairly successful, even though some critics, they never accepted it, uh, I think. And another more recent and also controversial case, but that I would like to take you up on is, let's, yeah, it wasn't an apology, but let's say the role of Jean de Mol in the whole uh, Voice of Holland um, situation. Yeah, so the Voice of Holland is a famous Dutch talent show. Welcome by the Voice of Holland. That has been running, I think, for 10 years, organized by Talpa in the beginning, which is owned by John de Mol, like this big, big, big media 
Mogul, I think they called it in the news. And they recently had like a big series of sexual harassment cases against some of the coaches, like famous Dutch people, not John de Mol, but like people in the show. Although one of them was the brother-in-law of John de Mol, so that's how it got very personal anyway. And it was addressed in this documentary of an hour. Je gaat kijken naar een uitzending over vermeend seksueel grensoverschrijdend gedrag en machtsmisbruik gekoppeld aan talentenshow The Voice of Holland. And John de Mol stepped up and sat down with the maker of the documentary, like in an interview, which was part of the documentary then. 20 minute, 30 minute interview. And he then also saw the materials for the first time and basically wanted to respond. Ja, ik, ik moet je zeggen dat, dat, dat als ze blijken te kloppen, heb ik me in de mensmarker Bussato kennelijk ongelooflijk vergist. Omdat ik, als ik heel eerlijk ben, nog steeds een beetje moeite heb om te geloven dat Marco aan kinderen zou zitten. Ik, ik kan het me gewoon niet voorstellen. So his basic response was that he was confused, like we all were, because there were people involved that we thought were very nice people and ended up having horrible, uh, horrible uh, harassment cases. So and and also he he talked about how he they tried as an organization to allow women particularly to uh, have contact points basically to address this. Uh, yeah, and there has been the big fallout afterwards because particularly the women at Talpa felt that it was not up to the victims to address this, but it was obviously up to Talpa to prevent this. So that, that, that was, I guess, the debate afterwards and John also apologized. My big point would be, I mean, yeah, for him as a CEO, he's also of an older generation. I think, I mean, it was a bit of an old fashioned approach, but his approach to sit down and be confronted with the material and really try to engage with what was going on. I, I thought that was quite brave. It was a bit maybe, yeah, maybe a bit naive to particularly also, I think not, not taking into account the subtlety and the, yeah, the, the subtlety of the whole situation, but at least I think his, his, yeah, he tried to do something good there. That's why I think it's an, ex- it could be an example of someone trying to engage with, yeah, the process of reconciliation in a good way, like really trying to engage with the, with victims and with yeah the problem I, i wouldn't say it was a successful apology because he never like he never explicitly apologized i think but it was a to me it was a very honest and i would i would want to say admirable attempt at um, at engaging at least with the problem at the voice of holland and also engaging in some way with the victims trying to reconcile let's say right it was a I think it was an honest attempt to maybe get to an apology to the victims for, for what happened at the Voice of Holland and the role Talpa and John de Mol played in it. But yeah, we can discuss whether you agree. It's not a very popular opinion that I'm having. Yeah, the- I, I think you're the first person I've heard <laughs> who thinks that it was an okay apology. And also, I well, I haven't been following too I closely. I also didn't really follow. So I don't really know if the victims responded or if it's an apology they accepted. Yeah, but maybe, okay, so maybe let's then move to the, the other question is how is it measured? So to me, also something that I would like to pose as a question to you, but so to me, apology is part of a bigger reconciliation process, right? I think one of the other episodes of your series is talking more yeah. about that. Yeah. And I always have this, maybe it's a, it's a very naive vision, but the, the reconciliation committees in South Africa after the civil war, right, where they very local had a ritual almost where perpetrators and victims, they would... Uh, 
yeah, they would get together with the community and they would try to reconcile like the, the horrible deeds that happened. Yeah, I think that to me shows what needs to happen in a good reconciliatory process. So uh, you need a perpetrator who is apologizing, but you also need a victim who is able to like, say their pain or their hurt. So that, that dynamic needs to be happening. But there's also a community involved, right? It's not, it's not just between victim and perpetrator. There's also a community involved. And I think... Um, I would say that is us, right? Particularly in the relation to corporations, I think currently the court of public opinion and like the dialogue we are having as society make it kind of difficult for corporations to take responsibility, to take the blame and apologize because it's hardly ever enough, right? And so, um, yeah, I think to me that's, again, I think in Jean de Mol case, I was a bit naive and very old-fashioned way of doing it, but he was trying to engage in a dialogue actually with the community and also with the victims, like what is going on? How can I, how can we improve? And I think that should be part of a good reconciliatory process. And I'm not sure we as a community always encourage that enough, right? Try, really try to allow corporations to engage with us in a debate about what is going wrong and how they can improve. So, and, and we like to play a blame game, but that's not always very beneficial to a reconciliatory process, Right, I think. Yeah, I think you covered a lot of the things that we, <laughs> that we covered in, in uh, the okay. interview with James, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's talking more about interpersonal conflict. Okay. And yeah, also yeah. in the context of, say, cancel culture, why it's so difficult for a public apology to be accepted. It's often because um, the hurt is, is inflicted upon a larger community, say, fans or consumers or something like that. So it's really hard to say who's going to accept this apology. Right. So if, what is your what is your take on this, James? <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, I don't know because I also I love to make fun of corporations and corporate call because it's funny. We right? all do. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> <laughs> but it's, we, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and yeah. so and I think yeah, I also of course do that because they're they're always funny. But I think also it's very difficult for a corporation to genuinely apologize. But I also think it's because it's more about what your actions are afterwards and the things that corporations really need to apologize for. I feel like they avoid maybe because of legal reasons. And then sometimes they choose some of these smaller things that they feel like they can kind of get away with while not apologizing to like the larger issues. I can't say much about the voice because I didn't follow the apology enough. But I also feel like with these situations, I feel like they should happen more privately or if it's happening in the public space, then the acceptance of the apology has to be in a public space so that everyone also doesn't keep picking a side to also fight for. That's what I would say. Yeah, so thinking about it, maybe there there is also not really a public space for corporations to apologize in, right? Like for states, it's very common, or for, for governments. So one of the things that I also looked up preparing for this is that the trust index shows that there's pretty low trust in governments right now, which I can follow also because of the, particularly in the Netherlands, because of some of the big scandals. But actually, trust in business is still very high. like, And it's something that we should treasure because... Um, in a polarized world, it's good to at least have like a big sector of society that we still trust. Uh, it does tell us something that, it, yeah, in some way, we still trust those corporations, even though we also like to make fun of them and blame them for a lot of the things that go wrong, right? But, but do people trust corporations? Well, it's not 100%, of course. <laughs> um, but no, but in general, it, no, trust rates are quite high. Yeah, they're not, I mean, they're, they're getting lower, but they're getting lower across the board, I think. 
but they're still sufficiently higher than trusting governments. Yeah. How is trust defined? It, that, yeah. Okay. Does it? So this. Yeah. No. Just to clarify, this like, yeah, know. what does trust look like is in a corporation? It, is the research done through consumer surveys or? I, uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I would have to, I would have to dive, dive deeper into that. But these, yeah, these are those general trust indexes that are published once in a while, right? So, sure. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, but, I mean, you don't trust the trust index, which is also fine. I mean, no. <laughs> it's, uh, no, I just like I'm always curious, like how how is trust measured, especially if we think about corporations as being these sort of amoral spaces or something like that. Like, what does trust look like, and yeah, I, it's also not coming for like your practice or anything. It's just really out of curiosity. Yeah, what does trust look like in this context? Yeah, yeah, that's a larger question. Yeah, and I think it's also. I mean, trusting a government is a very like uh, it's very natural to talk about trusting a government. It's maybe less so in mm. business because it's, the government is there to protect us to help us. Business, it it doesn't feel like that, right? But maybe that's changing. Maybe we should perceive business more and more as there to help us. And there is something that we offer. We decide what business is like mm. as a society, then I mean. Mm. Yeah. So that actually flows nicely into our next question, which is about our role as consumers and what responsibility. Do we have a responsibility when it comes to corporate misdeeds? Yeah. So, yes, I think we do. So, um Again, so corporations are often perceived as private actors, right? So, and also as not us, they are somewhere else. And so if you compare that to a state, so for example, the Netherlands has apologized for colonialism in Indonesia. That is something that I think we can grasp because behind the state stands a people. And so a people can apologize. And it can even be the case in, in this case, but I think the German people are to me still the best example. They burdened the responsibility for the Holocaust and World War II, even those people that were not alive at the time, right? So it's really something that you as a people, you take responsibility for and you as a people apologize for. That is something that we are familiar with in the realm of the state, but not in corporations. We don't feel responsible for what Shell is doing right now. And that to me is odd. I think we should revisit that because, um, for example, if a Bengali child is engaged in the industry of producing, let's say, Zara clothing, but also in Gucci clothing, which they are, some of them, would they really be convinced if we say, well, we, we, don't, uh, we don't have a role in that. It was, uh, it was Zara who did it or Gucci who did it or, or another big corporation. We bought the clothing and we had it at a lower price. So we, we had the benefit, but oh, it's not, it's not us. It's, uh, it's, I don't think they would be convinced. And so, yeah, I think we are part of a system that is, yeah, that is committing these horrible crimes or at least these horrible acts against nature, against humanity. And I think it would be too easy to say that we are innocent bystanders in that system. So we might not be the perpetrators, but we are definitely guilty bystanders, I think. And it would be good to look at ourselves that way, I think. So to follow up on that, what are your thoughts on boycotting as, yeah, I, I think, I mean, when we talk about our role as consumers, boycotting is like one of the most popular, one of the most known ways of responding. Is that effective? And are there other models that could be more 
of a dialogue between, I don't know, a dialogue towards actual reform? Yeah, good question. So, and, and not one that I'm going to be able to answer completely, I think. Yeah, so boycotting, you're right. So it's, it, it is a very effective way of at least stating as consumers, this is what we think of the way you do business. Or I think consumer choice in general, right, is a way of, yeah, it's voting. It's a way of voting, basically. Also it related to like the way we perceive business is still as something that is outside of ourselves. I think if we start perceiving of them as something that we create, that we allow to be as a legal community, because they are ultimately they are incorporated by our laws, right? It's our government that puts in the legislation that allows these corporations to operate the way they do. So I think apart from making consumer decisions, there's also much broader debate, I think, as a society, what we expect from corporations through these laws. And I'm not just saying that that we need to have a political discussion about it. I think we should do that as well, but also just a discussion, like a public discussion as society of what we expect from our corporations and our business leaders, the same way we would discuss what we expect from our governments and our political leaders. And then consumer choice is definitely an important way to like enforce it, but it can also be just a public space that we discussed earlier in which we find it normal to address what we expect from corporations as moral actors. I hope you can follow what I'm... It's a, it's a bit of a shift in a paradigm. We're not used to do that with mm. corporations because we don't perceive them as such, but I think we should. That's what I'm trying to say. So are there people or entities that are facilitating these kinds of processes well it used to be civil society i mean particularly in the netherlands we are with polderland with the polder model so we have and we have a culture of um, consultation a lot of civil society actors with names that we wouldn't know but like uh, yeah unions but they're not just unions of employees but also unions of all types of groups of people and they would engage with corporations about their responsibilities and in corporate governance Oftentimes we uh, dichotomize between, let's say, the Anglo-Saxon model of corporate governance, which is really profit-driven and, and shareholder-driven, and then the Rhineland model. Maybe you've heard of that, which is no. like, like the one in the Rhine country, so Germany, uh, the Netherlands, but also broader, like continental Europe. And the Rhineland model has always been this corporate governance idea of engaging with all these different stakeholders in society. In various forms. I mean, not always public. Like it, it could be a talk show, but probably it's not a talk show. It's like somewhere, a conference somewhere where these different organizations would engage with each other. Yeah, they would also define like private regulations or agreements about how to do business. or And so, yeah, I think that could be a way to do it. So you mean, what What do you mean? <laughs> so, do you, so what I'm hearing is like there are, I don't know. So, so this model, this Rhineland model is more about uh, what gathering information and opinions from different stakeholders as in people like not just the public or yeah what what do you mean i i'm not clear yeah but so i mean just think out loud let let's think out, out loud how does a community establish the norms that regulates how people interact with each other and not just legal norms so not just the ones that we like codify through a democratic process of electing a government that then codifies it but as a community like how do we for example, I think the whole Black Lives Matter movement is it's a community endeavor. It's about like discussing what we think is like etiquette, like the way we uh, engage with each other on a daily basis. 
and things we find normal and things that we think we could do without basically or, or questions we could do without or i don't know right this is a it's an organic process it's it's things like these it's podcasts it's it's uh, art that's what you mean. it's uh, it's a bar talk it's uh, i don't know it's stories it's books we write it's it's talk shows more and more right that it's an important community space i think all these spaces it used to be living room conversations as well uh, right. newspapers but any any possible medium in which a community discusses with with itself with each other members of a community discuss with each other what they want to be as a community how they want to interact and so all these modes of discussion and say setting out or influencing opinion or um, just discussing are taken into a consideration in this particular model that you're just you're talking about yeah well okay. they used to be so this, yeah the Rhineland model you mean yeah. yes yeah yeah mm. I guess when I always think of corporations, I always, there's this powerlessness that I feel in terms of like stating an issue, even within a community, because I always feel like with corporations, the profit is what's most important. And even if some communities may feel a certain way, if you're outnumbered, then it doesn't really matter because it's an amoral space. Well, we were talking earlier off the air that what's difficult in talking about apologies in the context of corporations is that it is very decentralized. You can't just knock on a door and say, hey, I have an issue here, right? So what is the approach here? Like, how do you... Where do you go to complain? Yeah, where's the complaints <laughs> Give department? Give us the address. <laughs> As you said, this is just very difficult because there is no... Also because they are fictional entities. Similar with states, states are also fictional entities. They, they're not real. But with corporations, it's even more difficult because there's not a people standing behind them. Well, we, we just discussed the difference, right? So the reason why I think this discussion has changed so much, in a, this, is a, this is the bigger idea behind my research. So there used to be like two dominant modes of organizing an economy. Either you use the market, that was a capitalist model, or you use the state, which was well, for some time the dominant socialist model. And the end of the Soviet Union kind of meant the end of the state as the best way to organize an economy. So since the 1990s, capitalism as the best model to organize economic activity has kind of like gained hold. So that's that's the neoliberal paradigm, right? So and, and academically, there's a lot of nuance here, but I think broadly, those two flavors still dominate the debate. What I think we have lost out of sight is there was always a third. There was always just the normal interpersonal interaction, neither market nor state, in which people and people with nature had direct relationships. And so well, the way I think about it is when you encounter a homeless person in the street... You can have three responses, right? You can Your first response can be get a job, earn money, become a consumer, and through the market, you will have your needs met. That's the capitalist approach. Then you have the second response could be, I pay my taxes, the state should take care of this because uh, that's the way we organize this. So that's the, let's say, socialist approach. But there is also always, and you can't walk away from it, the personal fact that there is someone, a human being standing in front of you, making an appeal on you to help them. And as a person, you can say yes or no, and you have your freedom to do it, but that is still there. And that is the community aspect, right? That's the fact that you share, yeah, you share a human destiny. And it's the same with nature. I mean, climate change, you can say, 
we need to solve climate change to the market. We need to solve it to the state. Or you can say, no, I have a direct relationship with nature. So every time I make a decision that can impact nature or can impact the climate, I take that into account. I have a direct responsibility here. And that conversation with each other about that, that third aspect, how we deal with each other when it comes to those interpersonal exchanges that we have on a daily basis, that, that I think is the proper forum to discuss these things also. In addition to? Yes, because mm -hmm. we can't get away from the market or the state. Yeah. We need both. Yeah. But I think we need to revitalize. And, and, yeah, and, and, and another word for that is the commons, right? The, revitalize the notion that there is a common space, neither market nor state, but it's us. It's mm -hmm. our space. Cool. Thanks for breaking that <laughs> yeah, down. No, yeah, you, yeah. you broke that down really clearly. It okay. doesn't make the discussion easier. <laughs> no, <laughs> at all. But weird. it is clearer. Yes. So in talking about morals, responsibility, in your research, you're looking into how corporations can become more socially and ecologically responsible. So one of the questions that we had, and I guess you've already sort of touched upon this, but under capitalism, is it possible for corporations to hold this responsibility? Yes, I like how innocently you pose yeah. this question. Uh, yeah, no, no, it's, it's because the obvious answer is, of course, it's possible, right? So um, it's it's not, of course, though. It's not obvious to most <laughs> of us, really, I don't think. No, 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 I understand. No, no, I understand. But I mean, uh, no, but again, it's also addressing your point about powerlessness. We designed capitalism. We did that. It's not like uh, evolution gave us capitalism. I mean, some... Some like big uh, writers, they suggested something like that, right? That it kind of emerged in evolution and then certainly we had a capitalist system and it was the end of history. And, but it's not. It's something that we, we designed it and we can redesign it in any way we want. That's why the arts, I think, have such an important role to play in the current state of the debate because it's a lot about the stories we tell about ourselves, how we relate to each other and to nature. And, and then we can reform the system. Yeah, again, coming back to it can be done through laws, but it can also be done through interpersonal dialogue, changing norms. I'm not saying it's easy. I'm also not saying it's it's obvious the direction that we should take, but it's I think it's very clear that it has to happen. We can't continue with the system as it is. So that, that that's always a good reason for change, right? And I'm very hopeful that it is going to happen because of the there is great momentum. The only thing that I think is still being decided is what direction we're going to take. And yeah, we can have a lot of discussion about like which one is the more favorable. But yeah, it surely is possible. Yeah, surely. Yeah, nice. We can be hopeful. Yeah, that's, <laughs> I think, yeah, if, if one thing, if, yeah, if you take one thing away from talking to a corporate lawyer, I think there is great hope for change also in maybe a field that you would not associate with <laughs> hopeful change for a better world. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah, and there is great reason for hope. Are there other people in your field who share this hope? <laughs> uh, uh, genuine question. You're calling me, you're calling me a, a lonely lunatic, uh, Yoon. Okay. Possibly an outlier. No, I... <laughs> No, I'm, I, I would no, like to know. I'm, I'm most definitely an outlier. So I think you, you are right to assume that the field is not dominated by this way of thinking. But rest assured, it, it's changing a lot. So I've been, I started to really write about this topic seven years ago now. And then it was, it was very unlikely that I would even get a PhD position like fun, <laughs> funded for this kind of research. And now almost every conference that I go to has... Sometimes the whole conference is dedicated to this and sometimes only a part of it. But there is always 
some conversation going on about how to reform corporate governance to become more sustainable. So, and that is in, in the past three years, maybe four years. So in that sense, it, it is changing a lot. And so, of course, the everyday practice of most corporate lawyers is still, as you would imagine, like in the movies, right? <laughs> but also there, there is, yeah, the conversation is changing. And again, these are also people and they also acknowledge that the way things are going is, is not it's not sustainable. It's not going to sustain itself. So also there you find, yeah, I think on a personal level, a lot of people really willing to change and yeah. Well, that makes me hopeful. Yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah again, I think there's great reason for hope. Yeah. Okay, our last question about corporate apologies, our own, right, before our audience questions. So who do you think from the corporation should apologize? Is it the CEO, the shareholders, more corporate names? Yes, I think, I mean, <laughs> like, I don't know anything. <laughs> like, yeah, like, shareholder. I feel like you're pulling all your corporate knowledge from, from succession. From succession. <laughs> Literally, I've learned so much from succession. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> shareholders, they talk about that a lot. <laughs> Yeah, no, so I think, to me at least, just now, I think there are two aspects that would help corporations to apologize. So the first is that it's really an internal process of being able to establish what has happened. So a factual, like being able to establish the facts, but also to establish what you as a corporation or as a corporate community, so not just CEO, but like also employees or or stakeholders even, that there is an internal process capable of defining what they think is right, given those facts. Like what should we have done or what should we have done differently? So that's the eternal aspect. And in those, I think, yeah, obviously the CEO, would, uh, the board would be engaged, the supervisory board uh, and potentially also shareholders. But I also think employees and potentially even external stakeholders that have a relationship with the corporation, like maybe suppliers or, or those civil society actors that we mentioned, they could all be engaged in this process. And that I think brings me to the other aspect. We should also just have more of a communal dialogue about it. Uh, not only as consumers, but as like as a community having these corporations, how do we want corporations to act? Do we want them to apologize? And maybe not in a blame game kind of way, but rather as guilty bystanders. Yeah, what would our response be to a Bengali child or to an indigenous community in the Amazon rainforest claiming that we are doing them wrong? We as a European community or a Dutch community also have a role in that to um, to engage with those accusations and, and yeah, define what we think is is right. I think that's such a great way to put it because it's so easy as a consumer, or as a community member to say, uh, this is what we don't want. But at least I very rarely ask myself, what do I want? How do I want corporations to actually behave? I don't ask myself that. I don't either. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah, I fully agree. And it's very human, right? To, uh, yeah, I'm not sure that's what you're saying, but I find it also for myself, it's very easy to end up in a situation where you are the good person and you're blaming the other person yeah, who's yeah, bad. Exactly. And that's why I think it's always good to think of yourself as partly guilty as well, because it also allows you to open up to the fact that those bad people are not only bad people, they're also good people trying to do good things at least. And you can have a conversation with them about like, how can this be improved? Or I think villainizing corporations, which has happened a lot, and also, again, going back to the Voice of Holland example happened with John de Mol, 
for good or bad reasons, but villainizing in itself is never a good way to get to reconciliation no. because it's very, yeah, also very difficult for a villain <laughs> to, yeah, to do good in a reconciliation process. And that's why personally, I'm not a big fan of cancel culture because it basically, it stops the conversation and it kind of divides the world falsely, I think, into good people and bad people. And, and that's never the truth. Being human is the messiest thing there is, because, because, <laughs> and particularly in this time, because you're always involved in, yeah, you're always partly guilty, guilty bystanders. We're all guilty bystanders. And, and if we acknowledge that, indeed, it becomes easier, I think, to, to engage with, with corporations about how they can improve their actions. Yeah. Onto our audience questions. Yes, yeah, I'm very excited about those. Yes. All right, our first one is coming from Michael, and he wants to know, what can the role of the individual be to help get a response from a large institution? Yeah, so you already uh, acknowledge that uh, there's not like a desk where you can go, you can knock on the door, and you get to talk to the CEO, unfortunately. No, so I think, yeah, going back to our discussion, I think just talking about it, right? And honestly talking about it. As we just said, not in a way of villainizing corporations, but rather see yourself as part of it, but also as a powerful part of it and see what you would want to change. And then yeah, I think there are multiple forums where you could properly engage, maybe not directly, but you can engage with the, let's say, the community dialogue. You, yeah, you can even uh, you can join. There are NGOs engaged with this. Yeah, I don't know, Greenpeace or but also smaller ones. So there are various forums, I think, that you can find where you can engage indirectly. I think that would be the best approach. Yeah, there is also something that I should mention, I think also to be more complete that Michael could look into if he's interested, is climate litigation cases. So for example, Milieu Defensi is properly starting court litigation cases against Shell and other corporations to become climate neutral or to commit to climate accords. Uh, again, Maybe not, yeah, not a diet, so, but, de- but they definitely could use our support. So that could be another way to engage with big institutions. Yeah. Nice. Lara asks, do you think there's still value in saying sorry? I mean, people say sorry so often and it feels that the original meaning is disappearing. So from that perspective, do actions speak louder than words? Yeah, great question, uh, Laura. Um, yeah, but the, also, I mean, I think one of your questions also, what constitutes a good apology? I think it, it involves in some way repenting, right? Repenting is, I think, a very yeah. Christian way of saying it, but amending, but yeah, yeah. amending your actions. Yeah. <laughs> uh, sorry for that. <laughs> <laughs> McDonald's repent. So, yeah, you might even wonder if a good apology could, could happen without changing your actions. And I think, I mean... Now, this is probably also your uh, point in your essay, uh, James, that if you did something wrong, it's always good to own up to it and say sorry. So the fact that it has devaluated doesn't mean that we should stop mm. doing it, I think, right? So, but the, yeah, the question then is how many honest apologies there are. And if it, yeah, anyway, that, that's yeah, a different question. But I think it includes an amending of actions. So. 
No, solid. Nice. Uh, all right. Henrietta would like to know, what is the biggest damage caused by corporations against nature in your perspective? The biggest damage cost. So, yeah, where to start, I think. So, my personal view on ecological... So, it, big discussion, right? So, how, what an ecological civilization would look like is a big question. And so, we are always going to harm nature, right? It's part of being a human civilization. We're agricultural by, like, our essence is to be manipulating nature in some way. So, th- there is always going to be this give and take between humans and nature. I think the biggest issue with our economy right now is that it's not regenerative. So I think it's in July that we have used up all the earth supplies for that year in July. So then the rest of the year, it's earth overshoot day because we overshoot what the planet has to give us. So I think the biggest damage to me is, is that we take more from mother earth from nature than it can provide us with and so we we bring it out of balance basically that to me is the biggest damage and it occurs in multiple ways it can be in in terms of pollution but also in terms of taking resources mining or overherding or or cutting down forests to plant monoculture so it's in various ways that we disrupt this ecological equilibrium and i think that to me is the biggest, let's say, uh, assignment to all of us, but particularly to corporations because they have such an important role in our economy. Yeah, to achieve that equilibrium again. Mm. I hope it's an answer to Henrietta's question. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Okay. And uh, related, an anonymous listener asks, this is maybe an impossible question. As in Mary... Love Ma- those. <laughs> <laughs> as in, you're doing your best you're doing great <laughs> okay. as in many areas of law apologizing should be accompanied by reparations and sometimes measures of non-repetition what does this look like for corporations that have harmed the environment or humans and what possibilities have you encountered in your research to make this the norm for corporations without profit being the main incentive for change so how can corporations make amends if amends cannot be made or if, uh, yeah without profit being the main incentive for change ah okay so it's not necessarily about that yeah some things have just been lost forever that's not uh, no i don't think so okay it's more like yeah it's it's focused on it's focused on reparations yeah, yeah. so how do corporations how do reparations happen occur for corporations that have harmed the environment or humans and is it possible to make it the norm for corporations without profit being at the yeah. center. So, uh, yeah, let me let me approach it as a two, two-sided question, right? So, in terms of reparations, it's going to be very difficult because I think most... Yeah, it's going to be very difficult for corporations to correct the harm that has already been done because it's just too much harm. I mean, just some facts that keep me up at night is like 70% of biodiversity is already lost, as in... It's not coming back. It's it's gone, right? So, so I think we shouldn't focus too much on reparations because it would just. It, I, th- I think it would it would stifle the system. So it, and it would put tremendous tension on on the system. Whereas we could use that energy maybe for change rather than repair. Then the other question I think about profit is um, it relates to the proper place of the market in a, let's say an ecological economy or an ecological civilization. So. The market and the need to make a profit is a great way to organize economic activity without centralized planning. So to to have liberty and economic activity at the same time. 
But then profit should really be a constraint. So profit is a way of saying if, if you're not profitable, then your business cannot be sustained. And so the market will then kind of yeah, put you out of business, right? You go bankrupt. But then profit as a constraint would still, um, it should never be an imperative to maximize profit then, but rather to view it as, okay, once I've achieved, let's say, cost efficient uh, functioning, well, when my income is higher than my cost, then I can also make sure that my whole operation yeah, is in equilibrium with society and nature. I think that is part of a bigger discussion going on right now about proper pricing, making sure that in this measuring of profit that all the costs is included and all the, mm. yeah, all the resources are properly priced. And so, yeah, I think, again, market has a place in an ecological civilization. And so profit is going to stay as a constraint. But then it's going to be more inclusive of like all these different types of yeah, ecological resources that we're using to make sure that it is in equilibrium with nature. Yeah, yeah. So can, kind you, of can, you, yeah, no, can, but, can you actually yeah. uh, list some uh, ways that people are taking environmental costs into consideration? Uh, but, and in terms of like reform? Um, yeah, so I mean, I should read more into the details of this debate. But so then, you know, the notion of the circular economy, I presume. Mm. Um, oh, can you just do a quick summary? Yeah, so I don't know. I'm thinking of an example like Fairphone, which really tried to to make a phone circular so it's easier to be recycled. But I think also to look really at the actual cost of all the resources that need to go into a phone and also, not, not yeah, the natural re- cost of mining and of, of polluting and all that, but also the human costs of like getting the resources out of the ground and actually getting the phone produced. I think those are examples of, yeah, of properly pricing the whole process of production and, and properly pricing like the resources that go into it, the human labor that goes into it and o- including the waste that results from it. And yeah, that also needs to be recycled at the end of a life cycle. So. Uh, again, this is not something I'm, I'm really, I'm not into uh, enough to know anything about the details, but there is a huge, let's say, there are a lot of people involved in improving this, in making sure that the price of a product actually reflects the social and natural capital that has gone into it. And if any of the listeners want to know more, yeah, there is like, I think it's called the seven capitals system or something like that but if you google something like natural capital social capital you'll find and they can also send me an email then i can send them more more about it but there is there's a lot going on in this field yeah cool thanks for that yes uh we have a question from carlotta who wants to know in an age where a lot of corporate behavior surrounding apology seems performative with things like greenwashing and things like that how can you make sure that a company isn't just being performative So how can you trust a company that has committed horrible crimes against nature or humanity if they have claimed to have changed their behavior? What performative means? Yeah. Like fake kind of. It's not a genuine apology. So so this is actually related to the previous question. It's more like, yeah. And we also talked about trust in a company or a corporation. So the question, I guess, is more like, how can you trust that this company has actually reformed its policies or changed their behavior and especially with things like greenwashing or that it's not just a surface level thing or like you yeah. know uh yeah you know as as consumers you can you can do something like you can contribute 26 cents for like carbon like offsetting carbon emissions yeah. and things like that 
Yeah, so I think two, two responses that I'm currently thinking of. So first, indeed, is that yeah, we need some basic trust that businesses do their best. I think the obvious thing that undermines this trust is that at this very moment, most legal systems of the most dominant economies, they prioritize shareholders and profits in corporate governance. So corporations might say we want to do better, but then if they if the next day they have to count to their shareholders uh, like uh, how high their profit is, then then that's going to undermine the trust that we have that they actually will do better, right? Because yeah, it's not well organized at the corporate governance level. So that is something that is changing already. But another thing I think the question addresses is how we hold corporations accountable, not just for their apologies, but in general, how we hold them accountable for for their sustainability strategies, for their promises regarding like the sustainable development goals and all those things. And again, accountability used to be an internal affair just between board, shareholders and, and supervisory board, perhaps like really putting shareholders first. I think that there also we see a big shift towards, for example, more uh, extensive reporting so that uh, at least we can see in the reports whether corporations have lived up to their promises, but also to have other accountability mechanisms, for example, through putting people in the supervisory board with a biological background or with a human rights background or, or to give stakeholders rights to hold the board accountable. Those kind of interventions to make sure that that we can, uh, let's say, punish or at least, um, yeah, that we can hold boards accountable for their policies towards sustainability and and, and social uh, equality or other topics. So, yeah, and, and and that also is a bigger debate about how to organize that. And but it, it's something that is also changing. Okay, cool. Thanks. Yeah. So, lastly, our listener E asks. Can you elaborate on the trend of companies produce... Oh, wait a second. A lot of our listeners have a lot of questions about performative corporate apologies. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) But it's okay. No, I think this is the same thing, actually. It's basically, yeah, how can a culture of more actionable responsibility and accountability be achieved? But I think you already answered that, right? Yeah. Unless you have something further to say. Yeah, no, I'm I'm going to be repeating myself, but I think okay. maybe an, another like because the, the question of listener E, thanks listener E, <laughs> um, because the question mentions culture, I think it goes back to another point that we discussed throughout this uh, conversation, and that's the role of us as a community, right? So, yeah, and again, I think also those communal aspects, uh, as you said, Yun, it's a bit diffuse where exactly this takes place, but this communal dialogue that we have as a society with civil society and with uh, corporations also includes accountability and how we do that. And I think a part of that also goes back to our discussion about blame games and, and the courts of public opinion. I think currently we as a community, we're quite hostile towards corporations. We make it quite hard for them to to, to be transparent and to take accountability because we, yeah, we can be quite harsh on them. For example, John de Mol, again, I think trying to, to take some responsibility and to learn from what happened at the Voice of Holland, like those kind of situations are also an opportunity for us as a community, I think, to, to hold corporations accountable, but also to help them take that accountability and uh, not be too harsh on them or not be disproportionately harsh on them, let's say, so that it's also something that we can work on together. Mm. Yeah, because it's also maybe good to emphasize that 
it's not yeah it's it is a very difficult transition for all of us to get to a more sustainable and social economy it's very it's very difficult and a lot of and and no one has the right answers also not corporations it's not it's not an easy decision between option a and option b and we just want them to change to option b and they're not doing it and we don't like them for it, it, it it's a it's a very difficult thing that and a lot of mistakes are going to be made and so yeah, I think the communal aspect of like doing this together rather than making them the villain and us the good guys. And I, I think, yeah, doing this together would also include like helping corporations take the right accountability and, and, and helping them improve and finding ways of improvement. <sighs> yeah, no, no, yeah. seriously, thank you so much. I feel like, yeah. Thank you for your answers and thank yeah. you for being patient with us as we oh, no. navigate, are grappling with navigate this. the seas of <laughs> corporate language and concepts yeah. and, and legal concepts as well. Uh, this is completely not our field yes. at all. And it's very rare that we are in contact with someone like you who's working in this field. Well, thank you. I think so. I mean, this it, it, it's very logical that it happens like this. Again, it goes back to how business kind of becomes a separate sector and it's not engaging directly anymore with civil society like you. Uh, and th- and that's exactly, I think something should change. So, so yeah, it's only good that you try to include this in a series like this. So thank you for putting it on the agenda, I suppose. Cool. Thank you. I feel like I learned a lot. A lot of things <laughs> okay. left me with something to wrestle with, with internally, but that's such a good feeling. Yeah. So I'm going to sit with some of these answers. It's not as black and white yeah. as you might think. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's, yeah, exactly. Maybe that should be the biggest takeaway. Well, yeah. Because, I mean, I must admit, I speak slightly from a, uh, no, not slightly. I speak from an <laughs> ideal perspective, I mm-hmm. guess. Uh, so it's, it's definitely a lot harder may, uh, than I uh, make it seem to be. But perhaps that's also a reason for hope. So it's, it's, that's what I hope. All right. Yeah, well, thank you so much. Thank you, Roy Haysockers. And uh, where can we find you online, if you would like to be found? <laughs> yeah, so I, it, I'm, uh, I guess if you Google me, you find uh, my email address somewhere, but um, or my LinkedIn profile, I suppose. So, And people should feel free to contact me. Yeah, cool. I guess. Cool. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> right, thanks. <laughs> That was Roy Hayes-Ockers on this episode of Bar Talk. I'm Yun Lee. And I'm James Purnell. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook. And be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your podcast. We also made a transcript of this episode, which you can find on our website. You can find links to related resources in the show notes of this episode. We want to thank Hans Poul for recording and editing these podcasts. Nia Constantinova for doing our PR. Denise Lee for designing the banner, and Sarafina Van Us for transcribing our podcasts. Thanks to IAI for letting us record in their studio, Strom Den Haag and Mondrian Funds for supporting our program, and last but not least, thank you to all of you listeners out there tuning in. Tune in next week when we talk to Lucas Johnson about conflict, nonviolence, and reconciliation. See you next week. Mm-hmm.